welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I am your host Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic and environmental practices. Today we have with us Jonathan Lundgren, founder of Ectisis Thousand Farms Initiative. He joins us from Esteline, South Dakota. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. We are all aware of the increase in greenhouse gases and carbon emission in our atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. How much of the Earth's atmosphere changed over the last, say, 200 years? Well, it's changed substantially, I think, is the answer. And depending on who you talk to, those numbers may vary a little bit. But rest assured that greenhouse gas emissions have increased. Climates are definitely changing, and they're likely caused through our activities. And how much of it is caused by human activity? You know, Because there are people who say, oh, this is evolution, and we had these things all the time. They, it is cyclical. How much of these changes are anthropogenic or pollution caused by human activity? There certainly has been fluctuations in climates and greenhouse gas levels over the eons on our planet. A debate about that, what's different this time is the magnitude and the rapidity of the changes that are happening. We can chart that directly as human populations have grown throughout the Earth's history. Life has helped to guide the climate and shape the climate and also atmospheric gas levels and things like this. And it's been able to successfully keep it within a certain range. The disruption of life is something that's kind of occurred on Earth at an unprecedented level. The species loss is pretty profound. And that disruption is manifesting itself in a pretty drastic fluctuation in our climate and in our planet's status. So the disruption of life has left, produced a dramatic change or fluctuation in things like climate and atmospheric gas levels, I guess, yeah, and balances in those. So when you said rapidly and drastically, give us some numbers. Well, species loss, we're losing about 10% of species per year. At that rate, you know, the FAO is talking about losing in topsoil on the earth and how that's related to our food systems. They estimate about 60 years left of topsoil at this rate. And at that same rate, we'll lose most species of life on earth, the majority of, of species, if we continue on our current trajectory, is going to be gone. You look at just invertebrate populations, things like insects or butterflies and things like this that we need. Pollinators are another good one. Recent studies show that we've lost over the last 27 years about 60% of the biomass of these organisms in certain regions. And that life does things. It helps to produce that homeostasis that the planet needs to continue. And we need to continue on this planet. You're throwing out some really startling statistics. 60 years, so in our children's lifetimes, yes, they could see this? Yes. There's a real sense of urgency. Things have to change, and they have to change now. Once we hit a certain tipping point, it gets harder and harder to reverse the trajectory of the planet. Ecdysis's purposes, I estimate that we've got about 10 years that we have to change our food system 
in order to use it as the tool that we need to help solve these planetary scale problems. That's a big ask. The status quo doesn't operate in that kind of time scale. We operate in small increments. But that means that bold action is needed. The status quo isn't getting us where we have to be. And so we have to think outside the box. Let's just talk about dirt. Essentially, there's carbon in the soil. That is SOC, soil organic carbon. What is SOC? Soil organic carbon is SOC. So this is part of the soil fraction that is directly related to carbon sequestration out of the atmosphere, putting this back into the soil. At the end of the day, soil carbon is the output of life. You don't get carbon without life. And so life is the big mitigator in a lot of these discussions that we should be having right now. In terms of soil carbon sequestration, desertification of landscapes, biodiversity loss, obviously, but even pollution and things like this. And a lot of things like agrochemicals that we're putting out there probably aren't necessary if you have a balanced food system. How is that different from soil organic matter? It's often interchanged. Yes. But not correctly so. Right. I guess that uh, soil organic carbon is one component of soil organic matter. And so there's other items that are being measured within the soil organic matter that would influence that. But they do tend to scale together when we're reporting these values. So the SOC is the product of carbon sequestration. Correct, yeah. There are several ways that the carbon in the soil has been depleted since the Industrial Revolution. Yes. How much has a soil depletion contributed to the carbon in our atmosphere? I don't know the exact proportion that comes from the soil versus from the oceans, from emissions that we're producing from like our our vehicles or methane from animals or what have you. But certainly there was a lot of carbon down in the soil and breaking that soil up ended up volatilizing a, a lot of that carbon. And so that is what's kind of being, it's a component of the carbon that's in the atmosphere. And the life back in the soil ends up becoming an important mitigator of that relationship. So it helps to draw carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. That's where the carbon came from originally, is the life on our planet. What are the different ways that this carbon was broken down from, say, a thousand years ago or, say, 200 years back? Through tillage, we broke up the soil and allowed that to volatilize up into the atmosphere. We lost a lot of our organic matter of our soil over through farming practices and also through removing fossil fuels that were deep down in the earth. That's also previous generations of life on our planet that have been kind of stored in that those deep carbon wells. So instead of tilling, what would you do? You develop a successful farming system by adopting, I guess, a different philosophy towards food production. So a regenerative food system employs a number of different sort of principles that help to attain these regenerative outcomes of things like increasing soil health, which soil carbon is certainly an element of that, conserving biodiversity, producing nutritious food profitably. These principles are stop tilling the soil, no-till, 
was one of the principles. Never leave bare soil. And this gets back to that whole life equation that I was talking about earlier. Uh, life is really essential. Ultimately, the energy that drives of the productivity of an ecosystem comes from the sun. And you have to be able to harness that energy via plants. Photosynthesis is a major approach for that. So never leave bare soil. Always have living roots in the ground on, your, on our farm. Plant diversity matters and getting more species within the habitat is really essential for fostering the life that allows an ecosystem to function. And then integrating animals and plants back together into a single ecosystem, a farm ecosystem, and then abandonment of agrochemicals. And that's another way that we ended up removing a lot of life from those systems, isn't it? When you said leave no land bare, I'm not a farmer, but I thought it was a common practice to leave land fallow between some crops. Yeah, it's a huge mistake. <laughs> I mean, when you look back at human history, there have been civilizations that have come and gone. David Gummery has a wonderful book that talks about the importance of soil in the evolution of human societies. And invariably, the societies that have crashed and have left little trace, depleted their soil resources, and they couldn't grow food anymore. And that's kind of where we're at as a planet right now, is that we're quickly depleting our soil, natural resource base of soil and life. And unless we fix that, we know how that story ends. So you're joining us from Esteline, South Dakota. Mm-hmm. It's a, such a small town. It's has a population of about 800 people? That's right, yeah. Ground zero. Wow. And the whole town is about 600 acres? <laughs> Don't blink or you'll miss it, right? I know. I was like, what? <laughs> this is such a cute little town. Describe your life in this town. Well, we live on Blue Dasher Farm. So we have a research facility, right? And so I have, I think, eight doctoral level scientists on staff that are housed both here as well as integrated into their own farming communities around the country right now. The whole idea is that we thought scientists needed to experience what it is to be a farmer. If we're going to advise farmers, we better be able to walk the talk. And so we have a regenerative farm right here in Esteline. And the whole goal is, you know, Boy, you asked me to describe life. Every day is a little different, you know, and I can come up with a plan for what the week is going to look like. But that plan uh, changes pretty darn rapidly as we get visitors from all over the planet to visit this little place in the middle of nowhere, South Dakota. Suddenly the sheep break out, and so we've got to go and navigate that. Or one of the neighbors stops by and wants to chat. Or, you know, we end up having to give an international podcast about some of the work that we're doing. It's an adventure, that's for sure, and we wear a lot of hats here. But it's all wrapped into farming and family and science. Those are the kind of the three central themes. So did you grow up in South Dakota? Nope, I grew up as a Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, in the suburbs out there, and uh, had never farmed before. And it wasn't cold enough for you, so you moved to South Dakota. <laughs> we moved directly on the same latitudinal gradient, but yes. Isn't that interesting? 
you know, when we were getting started, we could have picked anywhere to put ash or farm. But this is where change is needed. This is the battlefront. This is ground zero of where we need to be integrating in to sort of change our food system. So you have Blue Dasher Farm. How big is that farm? Oh, it's small. It's 53 acres. Historically, that's a large farm, right? But by current standards, that's a small farm. And really, half of that even is native, unbroken prairie and wetlands that we are working with rather than trying to remove. But here we produce honey and lamb and pork and eggs and poultry for our local communities. And um, that's kind of where we fit. So you have two components to your establishment, shall we say. One is the Blue Dasher Farm and other is the nonprofit Ectisis. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your background. You have a PhD? Yes, I have a doctorate from the University of Illinois in um, entomology, actually, insects. And so I and a bachelor's in biology from the University of Minnesota and a master's in entomology in, from Minnesota. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You've worked in a government lab till 2016. Correct. So I worked for the USDA Ag Research Service for about 11 years. And things were going really well. You know, there's a certain number of metrics that scientists sort of assess their strength by. I had some of the best statistics in the business. I was one of the top young scientists in the country and received a, an award with the White House from Obama. And um, then I started to meet farmers that were doing things that science said couldn't happen. They were farming without a lot of inputs. And they weren't experiencing things like insect pests. And they were focusing on crazy things like soil health, which was, I don't think anybody even really knew what it meant back then. I also started to meet beekeepers. And the beekeepers were saying that pesticides were killing the bees. We started to use our science and sort of validate that. And this was fringe kind of things, right? We weren't supposed to be criticizing the current industrialized food system. And everything started to change. And it became really clear that, you know, if we want change, it's not going to come from within. I think that science and the infrastructure needs to evolve if we're going to be ushering in sort of this macro evolutionary change to our food system. We need to be thinking outside of the box as far as interdisciplinary science. We need to think about the different metrics that we're assessing scientists by and try to make those conform to the problems that we're trying to solve. And that led me to quit and start something totally different, grassroots science. I want to step back to about the first point you said. While you were at the USDA, they were not willing to listen to evidence which was contrary to industrial farming. As a consumer, when I see the USDA stamp, I feel it has taken into account a balanced view, multidisciplinary view of assuring that this product is good for me, my family, for the environment. How do I believe what you're saying? One of the areas that I used to be a scientist in is, and still am, is risk assessment of things like pesticides. And let me give you an example. I was an advisor for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency as well as the European Food Safety Authority, other governments as well, because I was at the top of my game. We were pumping out the right kind of 
risk assessments and we're trying to help formulate what risk assessments are. You know, there's an assumption that you can go down to the local garden store and if you buy a bottle of something, that that's safe, right? That somebody is watching and that it's safe. I could tell you, nobody is watching. I worked in this industry for 20 years and was at the top of the heap. Honestly, how on earth could you regulate this? I mean, essentially what's done is there's a series of protocols that are established and large corporate interests are able to step in and circumnavigate those or skate in and out in order to ensure that their products rise to dominance within our system. And there's very little policing of the impacts of things like pesticides and chemicals. I don't know how you would even approach that. As a risk assessment a scientist, these are very, very difficult questions. How on earth? And if organization like a regulatory agency is completely gutted funding-wise and they're constantly having to pursue their balance between the revolving door of special interests that come into these federal agencies versus hiring out their top employees over to these organizations, it's a mess. And so, you know, change doesn't come from governments very often. Governments don't lead, at least. They follow. And right now, there is a lot of change happening to our food system. But that change isn't coming from the government. That change is coming from grassroots places like Ecdysis Foundation or farmers that are really making things happen. It seems like you were pretty unhappy with your position there. And you stepped down or quit in 2016? So actually, I was very happy. I worked for the USDA for a long time. But as things started to change and they started to suppress the science that we were doing, that shouldn't happen. <laughs> That's not okay. Science has to be able to see the light of day. So I quit and started Ecdysis Foundation and Ludesher Farm. Did you receive any backlash because you were, like you said, fringe? Oh, yeah. I was getting, that was part of the pressure, right? The USDA didn't like the kind of science that we were starting to produce. Honestly, I, if I had wanted to, I could still be working at the USDA. I could just count lady beetle spots the rest of my career, and the USDA would have been perfectly happy. But as soon as you start asking questions about, is our food system producing climate change, or is our food system unnecessarily controlled by large corporate interests that are selling pesticides unnecessarily, or that our regulatory system isn't catching all of these different risks that are being put out there, that's when the retaliation comes, and it comes in ways that you're not expecting. Once such retaliation, there was a misconduct charge against you in 2014. Do you want to talk about it? I'd love to hear your side of the story. Yes, that is one of the ways that they retaliate against scientists, is that they haul everybody that you care about into a room with a spotlight, literally, and try to find things that they can persecute you on. So there was never a misconduct allegation that was levied or anything like that, but they sent the message, didn't they, that you should shut up. And so they started to suspend me for this. And then I did a paperwork violation as I was going to the National Academy of Sciences to present work on my genetically modified crops risk assessment work. And I didn't sign one of my travel forms, which 
many of my colleagues had done just the week before and done the same. They didn't get suspended, but they decided, oh, this is a grievous offense that needs. I wasn't allowed to speak to the press anymore without vetting all of my slides by seven or eight layers of non-specialists. Look at this up and down the command chain, and it's just wasn't worth it anymore. I was spending all of my time defending myself as opposed to doing the work that was needed. I quit. And now I'm able to do all of the things that the USDA hired me to do, but wouldn't let me. So you moved to South Dakota and you started Blue Dasher Farm or you started the foundation? I was already here in South Dakota. I'm working for the USDA. Just moved north a little bit. Yes. So that's what we did. We ended up saying, you know, this regenerative agriculture is, we believe this is the future and their science is not being done on it. And I don't think that it can happen within the current scientific infrastructure. And so if you believe that this is something that needs support, please consider donating in order to make this happen. And the farmers and the beekeepers and stakeholders from all over the planet bankrolled a research facility in regenerative ag. That's never happened before. It was on an Indiegogo campaign. It was a crowdfunding campaign, which is a crazy idea, but I'll be damned if it didn't work. Did you ever consider joining university to continue your research? You know, it's very similar at universities. The situation at universities, I mean, I've had colleagues working in risk assessment and they're told to shut up. That's not always the case, but it certainly is the case that larger institutions are more easily manipulated. They require additional money and there's only so much, so many deep pockets that are out there. So for the people that we were trying to work with, working for a university actually diminished their credibility. Rethink how we were applying science. So how much money did Ecdice's foundation raise in your Indiegogo campaign? On the actual campaign website, it was $75,000, but the reality was that it was because a lot of the farmers and beekeepers didn't want to give money through that venue, but we raised about 350000 total to get us up and off of the ground. So that gave you enough money to buy the land, start the research facility, hire the postdoctoral or researchers? The people that worked at the USDA ended up coming with when I started, at least the graduate students all came with me when I started Blue Dasher Farm and Ecdysis Foundation. Those initial inputs were used to pay salaries primarily, as well as some renovations of the facilities and things like that and get our research program up and off of the ground. But it was terrifying. I'm not going to lie. It was absolutely terrifying. We, there were some days when I didn't know where the next paycheck, you know, payroll was due and I didn't have the money in the bank. But then I would go out to the mailbox and some beekeeper would send a check for $10,000 and we'd still be in business. And little by little, we went from paying or being able to cover the salaries for the next couple of weeks to the next three months to the next six months. And our salaries, infrastructure and budgets ended up swelling. And every year we've ended up doubling our size. It's a pretty exciting thing to watch. There was no instruction book, that's for damn sure. Ecadice's foundation is Thousand Farm Initiative. What does that mean? The Thousand Farm Initiative is kind of what Ecadice's foundation has been leading up to over the last six years. We've been around for six seasons, we like to say. Essentially, science has not gotten us where we need to be 
on this regenerative farming and not fast enough and not focused enough. We've been conducting the kinds of science that needs to happen and learning what sorts of practices and procedures need to be in place in terms of running national scale research projects that can simultaneously examine a lot of different food systems. We've been developing entirely new technologies as well as standardizing and automating sampling procedures so that with a bare minimum budget, we can deploy teams all over the country in order to conduct the largest agricultural experiment that's ever even been attempted, where we are doing full systems inventories on 1,000 farms from across the country. What is the goal of this research and data gathering? Number one is, does regenerative agriculture work, no matter what you grow and where you grow it? And number two is farmers are developing transition strategies in order to get to a regenerative system. Can we develop roadmaps that help to expedite and remove hurdles to farmers that are trying to make that transition uh, to different food systems all over the U.S.? Based on that, we'll also monitor these things over 10 years to see these farms over 10 years in order to see, did it work? I mean, did we attain those regenerative outcomes that help to, say, sequester additional carbon down into the ground or help to reverse the desertification of certain areas like the Central Valley of California? And what is the impact on rural communities? So I'm trying to understand the procedure. How do you pick these thousand farms? Or is thousand just figurative or is it actually thousand? Yes, you're asking the nuts and bolts of this project, and it's been a significant endeavor to answer the, that question. But essentially, the way that we're doing it is we're prioritizing. So we've divided the country into 10 eco-regions, and then we've looked at what sort of food systems are dominant in each of those eco-regions. And so those are some of the focal food systems that we're trying to attain. Within those, Farmers have to uh, fall within a continuum from completely conventional to all the way to very, very regenerative. And so we just started a push in order to recruit producers. And in the last week or so, we've had a few hundred that have been onboarded into our system, as well as existing 200 plus farmers that we've already been working on. And based on the interest levels and the different food systems, we'll allow those farmers to help guide that discussion on which systems we end up investigating within each eco-region. So what do they grow on these farms? I understand that they are divided into these different eco-regions, and each region, I'm assuming, is good for growing a particular kind of crop. Correct, yeah. Are they able to be profitable? Because right now, the whole supply chain, the whole thing is so geared to mass production. For instance, corn, right? The corns are the exact size, their exact shape. So they pack well, they travel well, picked at this exact moment. Whereas your corn may have an extra year. It may have, you know, it may not be as uh, commercially suitable. How do your farmers make money? How are they profitable? How are they able to sustain and support their families and employees? The regenerative farms in our economic analyses of these different systems that we've worked on so far 
show that uh, these farmers tend to be about twice as profitable as their conventional neighbors. It's a very profitable business model. We'll be documenting that in a lot more food systems to see all of the myriad ways they accomplish this, but reducing input costs is a big one, uh, including uh, the cost of agrochemicals like fertilizers and seed costs that have genetically modified traits. They also market their products differently. And some of them receive a premium because they're regenerative or they're organically certified. But that doesn't have to be the case. They can make just as much money as their conventional neighbors by farming regeneratively. When they do certify that they make a lot more money. So that's always a nice benefit when you're a farmer. There's a movement from organic farming to natural farming. Is that something that you farms focus on or are they when they talk about natural farming, they actually mean regenerative farming. I don't know that term, natural farming, but certainly regenerative farming is natural. In fact, it's kind of the, I think it, it adheres more to the fundamentals of what organic was back in, when it first in its inception than it is right now from based on regulatory uh, procedures that have been co-opted by large corporations within, within our organic system. But when you find a truly organic farm, typically they're well characterized as regenerative as well. We had on our show Polyphase Farms, who is a leader in regenerative farming. He conducts tours, educational programs, but you do something called agroecology? So Polyface Farms would be an excellent example of a regenerative farm. A closed system, life in balance, and uh, integration of uh, stacked enterprises in order to make a successful business model and grow food for a large portion of the community. Yeah, so agroecology is the application, I guess. Ecology is the study of how different sort of uh, components of an ecosystem interact or within a habitat, all of the different interactions of both abiotic, things like weather or, the, or you know, the substrate of a soil, as well as the biotic system and how they merge together. And agro just means we study those in farmland. You were trained as an entomologist, right? And we spoke about how we are losing the insect population on our planet. Yes. Because of various reasons. One may be excessive use of insecticides, pesticides, but we need these insects. Could you give us a few examples where insects actually help the plants? Plants can't live without insects. We can't live without insects. We can't live without life. So all of those organisms, all the critters that live out there, I mean, we wouldn't be humans if we didn't have those organisms in our lives. Plants are just the same way. Think about pollination. Think about cycling of nutrients within the soil. Insects are absolutely indispensable in recycling those nutrients and returning them back into the soil so that we can feed the next generation of plants. I mean, insects shape the colors and the flavors and the smells of our world. It would be a much different planet. We wouldn't have things like angiosperms if we like flowering plants is what I'm referring to there if we didn't have insects <laughs> they co-evolved together so what do you plan to achieve with all what you're doing you're, you're almost pure heading a movement I would say what is your ultimate goal 
the ultimate goal is to have a planet where we can coexist with nature. And our food system is an inherent interface between us. What is the goal? We are going to reverse these planetary scale problems using our food system. And so we're going to have to conduct the science in order to make that happen. At the end of the day, what is my goal? I want to be able to relax with my loved ones and, uh, <laughs> and know that we've set the planet on the correct trajectory where I don't have to worry about whether it's going to be there for them. You were serving the marginalized communities. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's on the ICDISIS website. So a big part of this is to try to help promote native and underrepresented farming group, especially indigenous food pathways would be a wonderful outcome. Demonstrate that, um, that these are a viable and extremely important component of our food system that we really need to learn from. They've been marginalized as the industrialized food model kind of has moved forward, but there's a lot of ancestral knowledge there that we can be relying on as we move forward. The goal is to have a com large component, hopefully 20% of the farmers, be from underrepresented groups, be they women-owned operation or minority-owned operations or indigenous, which sounds, oh, 20%, that's not a lot. Right now, I think within these groups, it's less than 1% is within our farming community. So they're really under... <laughs> Finding 20% is really the challenge for us. <laughs> so far, we've been very successful, though, as we start to dig in our almond study that just came, is we're about to leave for California here in three weeks. About 30% of those farmers ended up being both women and minority-owned farms. So it was wonderful to see that response, and we're hoping to replicate that across the U.S. One takeaway the cynic in me takes from your research is that I won't have the variety in my grocery store. Will that be the outcome of your research? No. In fact, we'll have more variety in our grocery store. Right now, you know, our food system, well, can we feed the planet or whatever? The reality is that 180 million acres in this U.S. Is, is devoted to food we don't eat, corn and soybeans. I don't know about you, but I don't remember the last time I went and took a bite of corn grain, turn it into fuel for our cars, we turn it into feed for animals that would rather be eating grass, and that system is breaking. The ultimate outcome of a regenerative food system is diversification of our food and the things that we produce and increasing the nutrition of the products that we're raising. It's a win-win. As consumers, we win with a regenerative food system. As conservationists, we win with a regenerative. Farmers win because they're more resilient and profitable. It's really one of these, these situations where there's an awful lot of winners that you don't see all the time in conflicts of sorts. A really good solution. On that uplifting note, thank you, Jonathan, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Wishing you all the best on your journey and hope we will speak again in 10 years or maybe sooner to learn about the progress Ecdysis Foundation has made. Well, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for giving me some time. 
listening to Mindful Businesses hosted and produced by Vidya Ayer. We'd love to hear from you. Send a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashricha. This is Vidya Iyer with Mindful Businesses.